If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Once again, we'll read the passage where Paul is giving some instruction and scolding the Corinthians for the mockery they have made at the Lord's table. Let's bow in prayer. Father, as always, we do consider it, Father, not only our duty, but a great privilege to gather in the name of Jesus Christ and to bow before you together in prayer, to bow before you together in reverence of who you are, to celebrate your attributes and your character through the singing of songs, to celebrate and to emphasize our dependence upon you as we pray, but also, Father, to seek your face and to seek instruction from your word. So, Father, we ask that as we have committed ourselves to the teaching of your word at this time, we ask for your blessing. That, Father, we would continue to be hungry for your word, that you would grant us understanding. Father, along with that, a great desire that, Father, we would examine ourselves in light of your word and continuously seek to be transformed in our thinking and in our behavior by what your word says. We know, Lord, that you're with us because you've promised us that you would always be with us, that you would never leave us for alone for a moment. And for that, we are grateful. So we thank you, Father, for that, for your word, in Christ's name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11, once again, beginning in verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world." You've heard me mention this before, if you've paid attention when we've partaken of communion. I mentioned it very briefly, that when it comes to communion, that we are, uh, there are three aspects of it that we are doing simultaneously, and that is we are looking to the past, uh, we are also looking to the present, and also to the future. And I want to flesh those out just a little more, uh, to give us a, a little more understanding, a little bit more to think about when it comes to this. These directions, if you would, are, are interrelated. They're not separate from each other. And again, that's the past, the present, and the future. And they all kind of come into the part of remembering that we're told to do when we partake of communion. We are told to remember. So the, the mindset that we are to have, the, I guess you would say even the behavior that we bring to the Lord's table, is one we, where we engage our mind and we are intentionally thinking about what we are doing, we are thinking about what it symbolizes, what it means, and also that we are making a declaration, a declaration to ourselves, a declaration to each other, a declaration to those who may be uh, with us on the morning that we do celebrate. 
So we need to make sure that, that, that when we come to the, to the table that we're doing that. Uh, that's not a time for us to be thinking about you know, what time it is or that's not the time for us to be thinking about what we're going to be doing later. Uh, the idea is to be focused on the Lord and we are to do that together. So the first thing that we are to do then is when it comes to this relationship that we have with God, and if we use biblical language, you know, you hear Christians often use the word covenant. We have a covenant relationship with God, and it is grounded in God's sovereign and in God's free acts of provision and deliverance. In other words, that God is sovereign, that nothing can thwart the plan of God, that God was not compelled to do whatever he did or to do the things that he's done to make provision for you and I to be delivered from our sin. In the same way that he was not compelled, he didn't have to free Israel uh, from their captivity in Egypt. God was acting freely in that sense. And we are declaring in this ceremony, if you would, or this ritual, uh, we're kind of making that declaration that God has made this provision. So when you think about the Old Covenant, where God proclaimed uh, his great act of delivering his people from slavery in Egypt, that was symbolized in the Passover meal. And, you know, if you've been a believer for a while, you've heard a great deal about the Passover. We know the story well, where it was the 10th plague and Israel was told to sacrifice a lamb and they were to smear the blood of this lamb on the doorpost and on the mantle of the door. And that night, the angel of death was going to be coming through the land of Egypt. And when the angel of death would come and it would see the blood, it would pass over that house. No death uh, would come upon uh, the individuals in the house. And of course, the ones who were in danger was the firstborn uh, of each family, the firstborn male uh, child. And we think about that in relation to what Christ has done. And the idea is that uh, we, you and I are not going to succumb to the judgment of God. Uh, the angel of death, in, in essence, passes over us because he sees the blood of Christ. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and we have no fear of that. So under the new covenant that we are under, God announces really a greater act of deliverance from our slavery to sin. And that's, again, through the death of the Messiah, who is the, the Lamb of God. And so it symbolizes, if you would, a new Passover meal that Jesus ate with his disciples. So the Lord's Supper then declares the life-freeing and life-transforming grace of God to his people in the cross of Christ. And so that's the, those are the things that we're thinking about. You know, the elements are very much tied into that. You know, when we talk about the, the bread, it symbolizes the body of Christ, which was beaten and tortured. He went through a great deal of pain. Uh, he had committed no sin. And so, you know, we partake of that together. Uh, and, and part of that also is it recognizes our identity with Christ. Because remember, he was our substitute. As believers, you can say, Jesus was my substitute on the cross. We can say, he died for my sin. We can say that he was treated by the Father as if he had lived my life and committed my sin. We're free to say that. We're not saying that out of arrogance. We're saying that because of the grace of God. That's what Christ did for us. And, and we are reminded of that very real event that took place. Remember that Christ did not die for us spiritually. You know, it wasn't some mysterious thing that we don't really understand. It was a real event that took place in history. 
Christ, as a human being, suffered greatly and died in our place. It is something that actually happened at a moment in history. And it was done for for us. And of course the idea is that it does, it transforms our life. We who were spiritually dead are now spiritually alive. We who were the enemies of God are now children of God. Uh, our, our position it completely changes and we are instantly transformed in that way. We are the people of the cross of Jesus Christ. And again, as we have mentioned many times before, that is why really not just the cross, maybe we'd emphasize the empty cross, has been the symbol of Christianity. Because apart from the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't have Christianity. It doesn't exist. There's no forgiveness of sins. There's no entrance into heaven. We remain the enemies of God. We remain in our sins. We remain dead. We remain condemned. And we then remain as individuals who will stand before God to receive their just sentence uh, as to the degree of punishments we're going to endure for all of eternity. And so a great deal has taken place because of the cross of Christ and because of what he's done. This is God's fundamental act of provision in the past, uh, which again establishes this relationship that we have with him. Secondly, and I want to read you a quote from D.A. Carson. Uh, he's one of, one of my favorites. And he says this, Covenant ceremonies, and of course he's speaking specifically of the Lord's table, often imply the way of life embodied in God's commands that is enabled by, corresponds to, and expresses the reality of the reconciled relationship established by God's acts of provision. So what he's saying there in the sentence, because this sentence is one of those sentences that are pregnant with an enormous amount of meaning. The idea is, as we work through it backward, is once again, because of what God has done, we are reconciled to God. Before we were his enemy, now we're his child. As a result of that and, and the reality of that, we also then are enabled, because of our position in Christ, because of his grace, we are enabled then to live the life he's called us to live. Uh, and the life that we're called to live, he's given to us in the commands that he's given to us. Uh, we sometimes talk about the imperatives uh, that are given to us. In the New Testament, I believe, there's 800 or around that many uh, imperatives that are given to us explaining how we are to live as Christians. So when we then partake of communion, we are also thinking about this, this new life that I have in Christ. It's not just that I'm saved, oh, I'm happy, and then I go on about my business waiting for the inevitable to come one day. No, that means my new life begins immediately. I am now able, for the first time in my life, when I become a believer, for the first time I am now enabled to actually worship God. No matter how many hymns a non-believer sings, and no matter how sincere they are, they are not worshiping God. In fact, they're making a mockery of who he is. Because all the while they're singing, they are making a declaration that they don't need God. That they don't want God. Because they are living in rebellion because they refuse to believe in his son. So when we become believers, then for the first time, we are enabled to actually worship him where he receives our worship. Is our worship imperfect? Absolutely. But we know that it's accepted by God because of Christ. And now I have this new life. I'm able to live in the power of the Spirit of God because of what Christ has done. And again, that was all provided uh, 
for you and I by what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So when we think about our life and think about the good things we are able to do, the kindness that's in our hearts, the the growing love that we have for both our family and non-family members, uh, the greater burdens that we experience for others, it's all the result of the work of Christ. And God enables us then to be able to to experience life really to the fullest in, in the way that he intends us to. And that's what, this is, that's what is in keeping with this. In keeping with the Passover, if you go back to that for a moment, as part of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, it says in Scripture that it was a sign, that it was to be a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. That's why then in announcing the new covenant during the Passover meal that Christ had with his disciples, he pronounced a word of judgment on Judas. Remember, Judas was there participating. Uh, he had already uh, made arrangements to betray Jesus. And Jesus basically told him to get to it. And also said, it would be better for that man to have never been born. I don't know about you, but just think about that for a moment. You know, that someone's punishment is going to be so severe that truly, you know, because we've heard people at times talk about being in such great pain, they wish they had never been born. They wish they had never experienced life because the pain is so intense. We hear Jesus makes that statement about this individual. That this one act that he committed, and better for that man to have never been born. It just would, would make someone shudder uh, if, you, if you heard that kind of a statement made about yourself. Paul also calls us to examine ourselves. And so the reason why that's done then during the Lord's table is again to remind us that this is not just some event in history and that's all that it is. That this event in history has ongoing results in the life of the believer. It is not now I can just identify myself and call myself a Christian. That's why we use other types of language such as, you know, an individual acting as a believer, behaving as a believer. Seeking to pursue life as a believer. Seeking the wisdom of of the Lord before we do things because we're believers in Christ and we belong to him. So here Paul chastises those who uh, were abusing other believers because of their lack of love for one another. So we are to examine the way that we relate to each other and the relationships that we have. And again, we look back at the cross we are, the focus of our attention is, once again, on the exhibition of love that Christ displayed for us. Because, again, remember, what he did, he did willingly. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, I guess I'll do it. That's, that's not what he was doing. He was doing it because he was actively, at that time, loving us. In fact, in the passage that we read this morning in the call to worship, where, uh, in Romans 5.8, where it says that... Um, Christ died for us, uh, yet while we were still sinners, the, the, in the Greek language where it says why we were, at, why we were yet still sinners, the, the Greek language is, is fairly emphatic that we were in the midst of our rebellion. It was, it was almost as if, if we could kind of take a capsule of time, if we were simultaneously spitting on Jesus out of hatred, in the midst of that moment, he died for us. Is this trying to really emphasize his determination, his will? But again, that was driven by his love for us. Driven by his love for us. And, and 
That is the love that God has poured into our hearts. And that is the expectation that we are to have for each other. That's why it is to be a strange and odd and foreign thing for a believer to ever hold a grudge. It doesn't mean that you and I would never be genuinely angry at betrayal and hurt. That's, we're going to experience that. But where we nurse the wound and continue to hold a grudge against an individual, we, in essence, have no right to do that. And some even will say, well, but you've never been deeply betrayed as I have. And that may be true, but it doesn't change the truth of what the Word of God says. Some of you may have heard me say this before, and I, do, I think I heard it from uh, J.I. Packer. is where I got this from. And this is what he said. He said that when we refuse to forgive someone else, what we are in essence saying, that what they have done to us is worse than what we have done to Christ. And he said, I, I would, he said that you would never be caught dead saying that in public because that would never be true. Someone else said, and I wish I could remember who said this, that they looked at it this way. And the idea is, is that maybe what it is that we are portraying is this idea that though God will forgive you for what you've done, I won't. That's, that, that, that's pretty accurate. If that person is a believer, have they been forgiven by God for their sin? The answer would be yes. So are we now going to take the stance well, God may forgive you, I won't. There's just no place in the life of the believer for that. The arrogance and the lack of love that reveals, uh, I don't think that reveals the depth of the hurt they've caused us. What that reveals is the lack of depth in our relationship with the Lord. Because our relationship with the Lord is one that can and does enable us to truly overcome what anybody has done to us. He transforms your personality, my personality. He transforms our hearts to where we are, I believe, we'll get to a point when we are unable to hold that grudge. Because we look at the cross and we, in essence, we, we melt. I have no right to hold on to this. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. There are some that will find that unbelievably and incredibly hard. You will not be able to do that in the flesh. You would desperately need the help of God. But I believe that in that instance, it's not the help of God in the sense that God gives you the grace in that moment, though he will. But the help of God that is needed is for God to continue to transform your heart so that you will remain that way. Because, you know, there are times that we may say we've forgiven an individual and maybe even put it on the back burner, but see, it's on the back burner. And we've, we've put the gas stove on low. And we can bring it to a boil whenever we want to. It needs to be removed from the stove, so to speak. So what we're talking about here, and there's been several terms that have been thrown around uh, at least since the 70s in describing the Sometimes the shallowness in the lives of Christians. Sometimes their lack of understanding of what God has done for them. It's the phrase cheap grace or maybe easy believism. The idea that 
There's no need for any kind of repentance as we encounter God and put our faith in him. In the new covenant we have with Christ, there's a great deal that's required of us. Nothing is required to save us. But in this relationship we have with God, we now take on these new responsibilities where God requires and demands that we live as he lived and that we become like he is. Reconciliation with God as a result of his love for us uh, is what we're proclaiming in the Lord's Supper. And that expresses itself not only in the partaking of the Lord's Supper together, but it also expresses itself in the reconciliation that we have with each other. Now, I've mentioned it several times over the past several weeks, so, but this is still a good time for us to bring this up. So the idea, once again, is this. When we have disagreements about what's going on in the country, whether it's with COVID or how COVID is being dealt with, if it has to do with BLM or Antifa or Back the Blue and all those kinds of things, no matter how strongly and adamant you may be about those issues, and you find another believer that is on the opposite end of that than you are, and even though that may be upsetting to you, you have no right to allow that to come in between you and them. Period. You don't have a right. We're Christians. And there's just, there's, I don't know any other way to say it. We can't say it strong enough. And so maybe, I want to say maybe, I'll say it is good. It is good that we disagree on some of those things. That some of us disagree. Our Christian faith has to be challenged somehow. We need to be able to express love for each other. To the point that maybe somebody will say, Bob, how in the world can you love Nepo? Do you know what he thinks? And what would I say? He's my brother. I love him. Period. That's it. You know, we can say, well, even though he's wrong, I love him. I won't even do that. I love him. He loves me because of Christ. So when we partake of communion, I would say that as you examine yourself, if you are, you know, got something burning against another individual, you need to, you need to fix that. Now I will say this. So if that other person doesn't know that you got this burning animosity towards them, don't go and confess it to them. That just, I don't know how that would look. I walk up to Tom, and Tom thinks everything between us is great. I say, Tom, you know, I've been holding a grudge against you for six months. Will you forgive me? What? <laughs> but, but if he knows, then yeah, I need to go to him. Right? And so, and so, but we need to make sure that we are examining ourselves. So don't do what some people do at times. When they're examining themselves during communion, and they say, oh, Lord, I hope Robert's thinking all right, that's not what this is. This is about you as an individual, and it's important. We need to consider the needs of others more important than our own. That's biblical. All of God's people are under the new covenant. All of us are promised a transformed heart. 
All of us have been given the power of the Spirit necessary to keep the commands of God. And so for you and I to partake of the Lord's Supper at the same time despising the church of God. So if you're despising an individual believer, you are despising the church of God. It is consequently a contradiction in terms that denies the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ in our life. So God's provision in Christ in the past, it declared and symbolized in the Lord's Supper becomes the platform for a Christ-like life in the present. The Lord's Supper declares what it means to be God's people and calls us to it, while at the same time warning us of God's discipline and judgment for our disobedience. Thirdly, speaking of our covenant, this relationship we have with the Lord, we are also making a declaration when we partake of the Lord's Supper. It also symbolizes this, and that it entails a promise of blessing for those who, in a reconciled relationship with God, which are believers, we are now enabled by the cross and the Spirit to keep the covenant with their obedience of faith. And so then, just as the Passover pointed forward to the promised Lamb, so too the Lord's Supper points forward to the day when it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God, and Christ will eat it again with his people. God's act of provision in the past secured his promises for the age to come. In other words, we know that Jesus will return because of what he did on the cross. That's the connection there. You can't have eschatology at all without soteriology. That's the fancy word for that, the doctrine of salvation. It begins with it. That is central in every way. Without that, there is no Lord that's returning. Jesus died on the cross as the betrayed Son of Man who will come to vindicate His people, that's us, and judge humanity. So the forgiveness of sins continually celebrated in the Lord's Supper is at the same time a word of promise that God's people will indeed drink the fruit of the vine new with Christ in his kingdom. And so we're looking forward to that. Again, D.A. Carson said this, By its very repetition, the Lord's Supper makes clear that the call of the new covenant is not perfection overnight, but perseverance over a lifetime an essential aspect of which is depending on the merciful forgiveness of God. In other words, we do this over and over again because we are striving to live this life that God has called us to live. And, this is, and God knows, because God is perfect, He understands us, He created us, He knows what sin has done to us, and He has provided this repetitious ceremony because we need those moments in time where we stop all of life and we think about that. And it should be encouraging to us that when we gather together, that everyone's doing that. I, along with our brothers and sisters, this is what we're doing. And this is what we're thinking about. God's provision uh, in Christ in the past leads to his commands again for our lives in the present in anticipation of being with him in his judgment to come. Gordon Fee says this, The Lord's Supper reminds us that we now find ourselves living between the two comings of Christ, called to be reconciled to God and to one another. Our life of faith is enabled by the cross of Christ and motivated by the promises of God that Christ's death makes possible. We are to be motivated in our lives as Christians because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and because he's coming again. We should want him to say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Dan Mitchell says this, The explicit focus of the Lord's Supper is on the cross. The Lord's Supper in symbolizing the death of Christ at the same time calls us to the obedience of faith, warns us of God's judgment, and manifests the wonders of God's grace and mercy from beginning to end. John Bloom says, The Lord's Supper makes clear that God's great acts of provision and deliverance from the exodus uh, from Egypt to Christ's death and resurrection to his return to the world in righteousness, together with God's constant work in the hearts and wills of his people throughout redemptive history, are not isolated acts of divine power and love. It is intertwined deeply with all of history and present, current events and the future. And it has everything to do with the life that we are living now. And then Oz Guinness says this, The acts of God bring us into a relationship with Him as His people. Consequently, God's provisions never stand alone. Every act of God's provision brings with it promises for the future, which in turn inevitably lead to the commands that embody our response to the God who provides. These commands depend on and express the reality of what God has done, is doing, and will do on behalf. So you could say to, to a degree that is the way that we partake of the Lord's Supper together is a manifestation of the truth that God really does exist. That God is powerful, has been involved in the history of mankind, and is involved in history now. Because he's involved in our lives in the way that we relate to our husbands and wives, the way that we relate to our children, the way we relate to our parents, the way that we relate to our friends, the way we relate to each other, the way we relate to our co-workers, in everything that we do. And so the purpose of the Lord's table is not just to recall data from the past, though we do that. We, we think in our mind. I think it's healthy for us to think in our mind what Jesus actually experienced maybe even visualize the, the beatings and, and the kind of gory torture that he experienced. And we are to remember that and recall that. And as a result of that, we call ourselves through God's grace anew to trust in Christ's provision in our everyday life with the body of Christ. In the same way that the cross of Jesus has provided for my salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ provides what I need each and every day to live for him. I'm being motivated by that. His spirit lives in me because he has been raised from the dead. And that can only take place because he has paid the penalty for my sin. And so as a result, I'm now reconciled to God. So I'm now in this position to be empowered by the spirit of God. Because I've been cleansed by his blood. And of course, we live each day then in anticipation of Christ coming again to judge the world. And we can rejoice in that because he's a righteous judge. He was righteous in his forgiveness of us. He'll be righteous when he judges the world. And he has called us to live for him and to declare this message, to proclaim this message, all of us, to those that we meet. So I trust that you'll take these things that we've talked about over the past three weeks, and when we gather next week for church and we have communion together, I trust that if, we've not, if you've not done these things before, you'll begin to engage your mind and your heart in thinking in this way, 
and in remembering in this way so that God may be honored and we may more and more be able to collectively declare consistently the wonderful and the marvelous message of the reality of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for being so good to us and for making this provision for us. Father, we know again, as we, because we know that it's right from your word, that we are undeserving of forgiveness. There's nothing good in us that you should do even one favor for us. And yet, Father, you sent your son to die for us, to be punished for our sin. And as your word says, in the midst of our rebellion, you did that. In the midst of us being the most disrespectful we could be, the most defiant we could be, Christ looked upon us not with anger or hatred, but with love. Father, we will probably never be able to fully comprehend that. Though we will, I think, experience glimpses of that as we live our lives. We pray that you would continue to make these things true and understandable in our lives. We pray, Lord, that we would again renew our trust in you and, and seek to live for you, to be used by you in the lives of others. And again, to recognize, Father, that as your children, we are your emissaries here on earth. Father, also we are grateful that you continue to forgive us of our unrighteousness. Because, Father, we have sinned this past week. We have erred greatly. And yet, we are not condemned because of Christ. We pray, Lord, we would never take that for granted. And never think of it lightly. And we do ask that, Father, those who may be here or may be watching, who have never trusted Christ, we ask that in your grace they would feel the weight of their sin and the weight of their distance from you and that they would become convinced that apart from you there's no salvation and they would turn to you, Father, and believe in Christ. As always, we thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.